Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the great ideas that have shaped Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. Today I've got Charlie Dewberry with me to talk about Lucretius's The Nature of Things. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Yeah, well, thanks, Gil. So Lucretius is quite a bit later than than what we've looked at previously. If folks have been listening to this in order, our last podcast would have been with Naomi talking about Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. So, Charlie, can you take us from sort of a large overview of from Aristotle to Lucretius, what's going on in the world, and why might that lead Lucretius to write, you know, the philosophy that he does? Okay, wow, a big question, but I'll jump in with a few major pieces of the overview. Is the place to start here is Aristotle was Alexander the Great's tutor. And I don't think Alexander learned an awful lot from Aristotle. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, that's important because obviously Alexander the Great conquered a major part of the Greek world. And when he was done with that, the Persian world and he and his army just kind of, well, his army got tired and decided they wanted to come home. <laughs> yeah. So Alexander's absolutely critical, I think, for understanding a shift in philosophy. Mm-hmm. Because Plato and Aristotle, they were really interested in the whole system of how everything fits together. Mm-hmm. And so they're what are called speculative metaphysics is sort of their endeavor. Mm-hmm. Well, After Alexander takes over the world here, I mean, if you're Greek, your whole world has kind of been turned upside down. Because although Alexander was Greek, he was a Macedonian. And to Athenians, you could even Mm. question whether they were Greek or not. Sure. Anyway, the world of the Greeks is from right here turned upside down. And then... After his 12-year campaign, Alexander dies very suddenly, and now you have generals fighting each other over the existence of your empire. Right. So life is very unpredictable. It's not very secure. Philosophy tends towards coming up with coping mechanisms for this. And as a philosopher, it's generally these Hellenistic philosophies that develop both here in Greece and then a little later than in Rome, they're taken to Rome. They're called therapeutic philosophies because their real focus is on how do we deal with fear and anxiety. Mm-hmm. That's the major shift that's happened. These therapeutic philosophies like Stoicism, I'm just not going to be affected by anything more or less. And then another one would be cynicism. You just don't like cultural convention. Think the hippies in the 60s, Mm. same sort of thing. And then skeptics that you just aren't sure what's true or not true. So you just kind of go with the tradition Mm. and not worry about things. And then the Epicureans. And that brings us to Lucretius. Epicurus He lived roughly the same time as Alexander, right after Alexander. So he's right at the beginning of this period of unsettling. Uh Lucretius is about mm, 200 years later. 
that's a little bit of the background and context then for Lucretius. Mm -hmm. So Lucretius writes this work on the nature of things, and it might be a little bit surprising that he's interested in, you're describing as a therapeutic sort of philosophy, that he's interested in dealing with anxiety and, and fear. Mm -hmm. But before we talk about sort of how he does that, let's talk a little bit about what he thinks the nature of things is. He is a very early atomist. He believes that the world is made up of atoms and the void. Mm -hmm. So let's take those in turn. What does he think sort of atoms are? And what are the sorts of things that he says about the world and what it's made up of? Okay. Well, just to preface, his project is in large part to refute Aristotle. So this picture he's coming up of how the world works, it's important to just note he has a project of coming up with something that contradicts Aristotle. So in his system, there's really ultimately only two things, atoms and the void. Now, as I, as I find interesting, the idea, he didn't originate it, the idea of atoms in a void, and neither did Epicurus. That It originally came from a pre-Socratic named Democritus. Mm -hmm. So this idea of atoms in a void has been around since the pre-Socratics, mm -hmm. who were before Plato and Aristotle. So he's actually picking up a theme. And just to say, Aristotle viewed his whole philosophy as refuting Democritus. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's just some of the players here. So yes, he's going to say that ultimately all there is is atoms and a void. So everything is material to start with. So those are the major building blocks then of his, of his understanding of the universe. So atomists from Democritus till <laughs> through Lucretius to our own day, right? One of the big problems with atoms as an explanation for natural phenomena is that they're very hard to see <laughs> if 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 not downright impossible mm -hmm. so why does lucretius think that things are made up of atoms if it's something that you can't sort of act with directly uh-huh well you raise a really interesting problem for him because a major part of his philosophy is he's an empiricist, meaning the only thing you can know is things you get from your five major senses. So uh, his project here is he's going to try to convince you that something you can't see exists. <laughs> so, I mean, right out, of the, right. right out of the box here, we have an interesting little project. Right. So how does he kind of do this? Well, he starts with something like, well, like the air. It moves. We feel the wind. There's something there, but we can't see, touch, smell yeah. it. There are things like smells. Well, we smell them, but we don't know what they are. They just show up. Yeah. Things like sound going through walls, even. Mm -hmm. uh, so the point is, there has to be some itty-bitties we wow. can't see. So he's doing it largely by rational inference yeah. that this is the way it has to be. Yeah. And things like 
we see in stairways that people wear steps down in rock over time or water erodes in rock. Well, if it's not little itty bitties going away, how do we explain these right. things? You can't see the wearing away of the itty bitties, but right. over time that must be what's happening because otherwise it would just all stay there. <laughs> yeah, well, what is it? How do we explain mm -hmm. it otherwise? Mm -hmm. So in any way, it's curious, but it's, yeah. it's an interesting interesting explanation yeah. so then it's important for him that there are these itty bitties atoms mm -hmm. and but he also thinks that it's very important that there is void mm -hmm. which is sort of the space that atoms are in mm -hmm. why does he think that the void is important for his for the atoms to sort of be present in? well the main thing is is atoms have to move mm-hmm and so if there is no movement of atoms, there's nothing in the universe. Mm -hmm. They have to be able to move. And the first thing is, is if there is no void, then how can anything move? Because there's something everywhere. And so, I mean, just think of a fish in water. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's got to move water. <laughs> it, right. It's got to move something. Yeah. Yeah. So one of his first explanations is, well, there has to be a void. Or if you have two things touching each other close together and you instantly jerk them apart, well, there's an instantaneous moment where there's space. So there has to be a vacuum. Yeah, you know, so vacuums do exist. Uh -huh. so, so in his mind, there has to be a vacuum. Otherwise, it would slow down and stop. Yeah. The motion as yeah, well. Yeah, so there's so there's often this sort of in our modern day, you know, there's the the heat death of the universe, mm -hmm. right? This idea that eventually all of the energy will sort of move out of atoms mm -hmm. and everything will just kind of be, you know, whatever lukewarm soup of of stuff mm -hmm. ends up being there. And so he thinks in order to avoid that state of things, you just have to have lots of room mm -hmm. for the atoms to move around in. Right. Their space is infinite. Yeah. There's no end to their motion. Mm -hmm. That's an important characteristic. For because, because if you don't have infinite space, then you're going to run out. Let's talk about that for a second. Our modern conception of atoms is we think that things are made of matter and energy. Mm -hmm. That's sort of our version of atoms in the void. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't have the same notion of energy as our sort of modern theory, correct? No, yeah, that's correct. In, in his mind, atoms atoms are like ball bearings. They're inert. They're just like little ball bearings. But they all have different shapes. Different shapes can attach to each other and then create everything. But it's a purely mechanical model. It, there's no electricity or magnetism or anything like that. It's just a mechanical model of of like Velcro and little yeah. pieces. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. just just to clarify, when you say that atoms are inert, in our system, an atom is made up of electrons and neutrons that mm -hmm. all have they all have energetic properties, right? Mm -hmm. And they yeah. interact with each other because of the way that the that energy sort of distributes itself and how it interfaces with other things. Uh-huh. 
he doesn't have a conception that there's any, there's like any kind of radioactivity or anything like that happening in his atoms. They do move, but Mm -hmm. that's not what you, that's not the kind of inert that you mean is they just don't have like electrons spinning around. They're like, they're they're like pool, pool balls on a pool table or, you know, just ball bearings bouncing around. One of the ways that this idea came up, if you can look and see light rays and then you see the dust floating, yeah. I don't recall him ever using that, but it's that kind of thing he's, he's appealing to, yeah. is stuff just floating. So one of the reasons why space has to be boundless or infinite is to get around in our modern view, you have the heat death you were talking about, but, but in his model, everything goes down. Now, if space is infinite, we can raise the issue, what the heck does down mean? <laughs> <laughs> but, but all these atoms are moving parallel downwards. Mm-hmm. Well, if there was a floor, they'd all end up on the floor and then it would stop. Sure. That would be his end of it. Yeah. It can't be like that. Right. So this is part of so the it, proof. They just, they just have to keep going. That's part of the proof that it has to be infinite. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes what, sense. <laughs> what does it mean for things to go down if you don't have, if there's no direction? This brings us to sort of his his third major concept in his his sort of cosmology, atoms void, and then as you were just describing, the atoms would just all sort of stay parallel to each other and never touch each other because they're all sort of mm-hmm. theoretically falling at a similar rate. Mm-hmm. So he has. He has a concept that sort of resolves the atoms never interacting with each other. Can you talk uh-huh. to us about this concept? Yeah. Well, because it's a fascinating move. All these atoms are just moving in parallel to each other, and then suddenly one of them swerves. Now, there is no cause. It just swerves. And when it swerves, of course, it's going to cause a collision. And once you have one collision, then you're going to have collisions all over forever. Well, the swerve does two things. One, it provides the opportunity for everything that's going to exist to exist. The other thing he does with it that's very interesting is that's how free will enters the model. So he's not a determinist like most materialists who are atomists, if everything ultimately is atoms in motion here, then everything's determined. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be a materialist, how do you avoid that? Well, this is kind of curious here. By the swerve, not only is that how stuff gets created, Mm -hmm. but the swerve also provides the opportunity for free will. Interesting. So I want you to to speculate a little bit here is the nature of free will. It sounds like that's this is it's this sort of unheard of anomaly. Because that's the case, are instances of humans exercising their free will, are they sort of in charge of that? Or is that just more of these sort of anomalies? happening do you understand this is a little it's a little bit of a like well i don't i yeah i don't know how lucretius would answer that okay but but actually i i do want to say a a piece here i I don't want to totally get a sidetracked on free will but but what's interesting about free will is until the modern period what free will meant 
was freedom from my base desires, uh -huh. meaning I'm not an addict, right. ultimately. That's what's meant by free will before this time. So this is part of the problem. If you would have said free will to Lucretius, sure. he would have been thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> I think in our parlance, we might say, like, we don't have to act like animals. No. You know, yeah. that's that's sort of Lucretius's right. part It's here. not instinct. Yeah. yeah. We're doing something else. Right. We are okay. doing something else. And that's what he built in here. Yeah. yeah. Is because of that swerve, and again, no cause given, but, yeah. but because an atom can all of a sudden swerve, then... You can have people who swerve. Yeah. 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 Okay. So this has been sort of a, this is a little bit of a different sort of thing than what we've usually done on this podcast. We're talking about atoms. We're talking about the void. We're talking about the swerve. So you were saying earlier that therapeutic philosophy is focused on relieving fear and anxiety. Mm -hmm. How is believing <laughs> in atoms, void, the swerve, how is that supposed to relieve the fear and anxiety that the folks that Lucretius was writing, you know, contemporaneous, how is that supposed to resolve that for them? Well, it, it's an interesting thought process, I think. Well, one is there's the existence of the gods. And Lucretius believes in the gods. In part, his whole book starts with the god, interacting uh -huh. with the god. So the gods are in the universe, but what are they made of? They're made of atoms and voids. Uh -huh. <laughs> so in part now, they're not up here. They're not this person with all this power and whatever else that's totally different from us that mm -hmm. lives in a different realm. They're just made up of atoms and voids like us. So for one, they're not really any different than us. Mm -hmm. But two, the other part of it is, is he says, they don't really care about us. I mean, they got their own thing going up there. Yeah. So he's taken away the picture of their role yeah. in the universe. Yeah. And he's made them just another piece of creation, just yeah. another combination of atoms in motion. Yeah. And so his first point is there's nothing to fear. Yeah. So Naomi did a discussion in one of our previous podcasts about polytheism, and she was saying one of the general sort of rules for ancient polytheism is this idea of as above, so below, that there's mm -hmm. this sort of correspondence between the realm of the gods and human reality. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it, with this perspective, if they're just the same sort of thing, mm -hmm. it's like there isn't any there there. Right. Right, I, even if there was. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he's talking about a God that's in the heaven. Yeah. But but the point is, is it's not made of different stuff. Right. I, I mean, there may be a little bit different going on, but it's certainly making them more similar. Yeah. So, another piece of it for him is, so we need to get rid of superstitions and uh -huh. like virgin sacrifices to the gods and things because... It makes no sense. There's no reality to this. The second part is we shouldn't fear death, you mm -hmm. know, or like an eternal hell. Why? Because we're just going to die and the atoms are going to come apart and form something else. So we just need to know that. Yeah. There's no eternal torment here. Right. So the that materialism is therapeutic because... 
the dominant ways of sort of thinking about how the gods interact with human beings, both sort of in life and then as judges of life, mm-hmm. those aren't true, <laughs> right? Because right. if everything's material, that has implications for what they're able to do and how right. it's all going to turn out in the right. end. Yeah. So Lucretius is interested in on building this sort of system of atoms in the void. I will I will ask this question sort of very broadly. Is he doing science? Well, I would say that from his perspective, it's not fundamentally that he's doing science. You ask it real broadly, so I'll give you a real broad answer here. No, he's doing therapeutic philosophy. Uh-huh. But the nature of his foundation here of atomism, is he doing science? Well, we first have to define what we mean by science. Sure. And the way we define it in the 20th century largely is science's hypothesis testing. Mm -hmm. He's not doing hypothesis testing, but I would argue that isn't science or never has it really been science. Yeah. I would define science as coming up with a theoretical explanation for what reality is. So if that's the definition, then of course he's doing science. Mm -hmm. He's coming up with a theory to explain the world, and he has done it from starting with his experience and making inferences. So I would argue that he's as much a scientist as any other scientist. Mm-hmm. So let's let's back up and let's sort of break that. I love that you're on the show, Charlie, because we get <laughs> we haven't really had an opportunity to sort of talk about Gutenberg's science program. And mm-hmm. this is part of these sorts of questions are the sorts of things that we look at in the Gutenberg mm-hmm. science program. So let's back up and let's 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 take sort of the pieces of that. Our modern conception of what science is is hypothesis testing. You said he didn't do that. No, that's not fundamentally what he's doing. Yeah. In other words, he doesn't have a possible explanation and set up a controlled experiment Mm -hmm. and have controlled and uncontrolled or testable situations. That's not his line of reasoning. So if he's not using experiments to sort of come up with I know we've talked sort of of some examples of sort of how he argues for things like atoms in the void, but how would you describe his method if he's not sort of using, you know, the so-called scientific method to do that? Well, he's just doing what every human being does in their daily life of figuring out how stuff works. I mean, he may be doing a little more sophisticated version of it, Well, let me take an example of like Galileo Mm -hmm. in his dialogues. What kind of argument is he making for positions? And he's saying, okay, let me set up a thought experiment here. And he'll set up thought experiments. Mm -hmm. Now, in his mind, those thought experiments are convincing. Mm But they're purely thought experiments. Right. You can't do the experiments. Right. We we would still think of Galileo as a scientist right. nowadays. And so 
because Lucretius is doing similar kinds of thought experiments to sort of derive atoms in the void, mm-hmm. you're saying that we should think of Lucretius as just as much of a scientist as Galileo. Well, again, it depends on what you mean by science right. and, and where you're going to draw the boundaries. Yes. And as I say, if we're going to define science broadly, as it's coming up with theories to explain the patterns that we see in the natural world, mm-hmm. then... Boy, it sounds like science to me. Yeah. So we would, in general, the the sort of atomic theorists of today, atomic theory of today, would disagree with a lot of Lucretius's conclusions, right? Mm-hmm. We already mentioned this idea that he, he, he believes that atoms are inert. Mm-hmm. That they don't have anything like electrons or charges or anything like that, that they're just shapes. Mm-hmm. How do you have a wrong definition of science that's saying we're testing hypotheses mm-hmm. uh, and not sort of this more general coming up with theories of the world? How do you improve on Lucretius if you if what you think you're doing is not that. You're going to have to do it by steps. Uh-huh. For example, why did atomic theory develop almost immediately with the rise of modern science as the framework they're going to investigate things with? And the reason is they read Lucretius. Uh-huh. One way to look at modern science, and this is overly simplistic, but I think at root it's majorly true, that after the Copernicans had destroyed the Ptolemaic view of the universe, what you have then is astronomy developing a new theory. Well, Ptolemy's astronomy was built on Aristotle. You can, in a sense, look at all of science as replacing Aristotle's philosophy with Mm -hmm. a new philosophy. Mm -hmm. Well, where are you going to come up with a new philosophy? Well, somebody who argued against (laughs) Aristotle would be one place to start. Right. And that's exactly what happened, Mm -hmm. is arguably it originally came largely from a guy named Gassende, Uh who read it and then spread it to all the scientists that were operating early. Here's somebody who's thought of an alternative to Aristotle's physics and what have you Mm -hmm. and there's reason to not believe those (laughs) physics anymore so here's this here's this alternative that we're sort of working with right and a perfect example is robert boyle boyle's Mm -hmm. law i mean we all know his early experiments with this stuff he's one of the more interesting ones to me interesting early scientists because he was also very definitely a christian Mm. So he viewed the atomic theory of Lucretius as an interesting model that we could use to explore these things, Mm -hmm. to come up with these relationships in things. On one hand, he's doing experiments with this framework, Mm -hmm. but on the other hand, he's a Christian. And so when he retired, he was so worried that this framework was going to get accepted as the theory that he took most of the money he had to create a chair in theology in his department so Mm -hmm. that that wouldn't happen because he thought saw it as antithetical to Uh Christianity. Uh And of course, that's uh, what happened. Yeah. But it started out as a useful framework to explore stuff. And then all of a sudden later became the dominant theory. There's a lot of the history of science where there is a, there is a theory of a thing 
And then somewhere along the line, everybody forgets that this is, uh-huh. or this is the model that we're working right. from. And, and people may say that it's the model, but it's sort of like, okay, this is our operating sort of reality. Right. You know, there's, there's a famous letter that, and you can help me remember who somebody was writing on behalf of Galileo saying, this isn't, this isn't, oh, yeah. he doesn't actually mean it, right? <laughs> this is an interesting way to think about it, but this is not, you know, the real, yeah. the real thing. Well, actually, that was Copernicus. Was it Copernicus? And yes. yeah, Co- Copernicus's manuscript was taken nearer the end of his life to a printer. Well, you know, this is during the early Reformation. Uh-huh. And I mean, Copernicus was Catholic and it went to a Protestant printer, uh-huh. <laughs> which is interesting in wow. itself. But anyway, so a Protestant interjected that little piece into right. Copernicus's work. Right. But this, this notion that right. we're, we're looking at ways to think about it, not necessarily the way to think yes. about it. Yeah. And so going back to this general definition that you gave of science earlier of thinking, we're coming up with a theory for what reality is. That's not just having a model. Right. It's actually trying to interface with what's actually going on. Right. So another piece of this, you know, you ask how we got there, and I said stepwise. Right. So one step was just, okay, we're going to start with this model. Yeah. And this the second step is, well, it largely came from Leibniz. And Leibniz wrote this, to me, it's the most bizarre philosophy ever written by a human being, Mm -hmm. that everything in the world is little onesies, monads. Uh And every little monad lasts forever and they're eternal, and every monad touches every other monad. Everything is connected to everything else. I mean, it's just just crazy making, Mm -hmm. you know, to try to think about it. Well, what's interesting in this book, The Monadology, is there's like one line in the middle of it that Leibniz says, and in an atom is the power to blow up the world. Well, I mean, he's critiquing Newton there, who believed that corpuscles, right, which are basically atoms. And he didn't think they were, and Newton thought that- They were inert. They were inert. <laughs> yeah. Like Lucretius. So, yeah. And so anyway, so in the middle of this work, Leibniz is like, no, nah, the power of an atom is to blow up the world. Hmm. Well- some point or other, I, and I, I'm not a physicist, so and I, I don't know the history of physics here. Sure, but, sure. But at some point, that got picked up. Yeah. Like I say, I don't know the details, sure. but it got picked up. Yeah. And so that's a piece of the development to our modern theory. And yeah, and get Chris Swanson in here to talk about <laughs> the rest of that because I'm way over yeah, my yeah, head yeah. here. I'm not a physicist. So, so <laughs> in, in our modern conception of science – where we talk about building theories by testing hypotheses, that sort of you would say Lucretius was not a scientist. And in this other, this alternate sort of way of thinking about science, which is something that we pursue at Gutenberg, is we're trying to understand reality. We would credit Lucretius with being a scientist. Even so, we might quibble with his picture of things, how would you go about sort of arguing against a picture of the world like that if you don't have the scientific method available to you? 
Well, do you mean now or back? Well, then? I, I'm just, I'm just for for the sake of our audience, right? Uh-huh. Who's, who maybe sort of have <laughs> this sort of picture of how we go about doing science? Uh-huh. How do you go about critiquing? a picture like Lucretius's if you're not going to do sort of experiments and, and that sort of thing. Well, would um, you, is that well, part of it? Sure. You can. I mean, one of the main things you would look at is, okay, if this is the way the world is now, let me think about myself as just atoms in motion. And are there pieces of me that are difficult to capture as atoms in motion? Or can I do things that are difficult to capture as atoms in motion? For instance, I can sit here and I can think of the color blue. Well, where is the blue? And I mean, it has to be material, right? Uh So it's got to be in space. So so problems like that begin to make you resist. Mm that kind of a perspective. And so you just have to be able to sort of avail yourself of all of the tools of philosophy to sort of <laughs> to well, sort of deal with these. And not just philosophy. Yes. So if we're a Christian that believes that right. a transcendent God created this, yeah. then well, we got all different kinds of starting assumptions right. and, and all different kinds of features you can build in. I mean, on one hand, a material view, and, and again, Lucretius, like the early pre-Socratics, they believed in evolution. So they're talking about life and the kinds of life coming from slime at the bottom of the ocean. Right. So, I mean, they're preceding Darwin by a couple thousand sure, sure. years. So, so that part isn't new. So on one hand, we are animal-like. I mean, we are mammals. A lot of our lives appear to be animal, but th- but then there's the other part that isn't. Yeah, is like how do you account for morality if things are just material? It's those kind of resistances that, a- as you look at the world and try to figure it out, you you push and you prod and yeah. you do stuff. Then you try to put a view together yeah. that takes all that you have, yeah. puts it together, and minimizes the number of resistances you yeah, have would, left. So would you say then that the modern method, it's not wrong to do experiments. The problem with the sort of modern way of thinking about it with the hypotheses is it sort of goes, okay, you can't go about doing certain kinds of things as a way to question the reality. The part that about modern science that's very interesting to me, and, and again, I, I had a science background my whole life. Something like Gutenberg would have been uninteresting to me. Sure. This is probably all another podcast, so you're probably <laughs> going to cut me off here. But, 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 but the point is, is, is I came to understand that, see, for a scientist, you're doing the experiments to establish objective facts. Uh-huh. Well... The view I hold now is there are no such thing as objective facts. All facts are embedded in theories. Uh And so the theory is what's prior. The theory is what's fundamental. Facts can, facts are malleable. They they can fit in different theories in different ways. And so the point is, is, well, there is no such thing as an objective fact. Mm So you can set up one experiment, you know, and get one result and set up another experiment and get 
sort of a different result depending on exactly how you set it up and, and how it may fit in with your theory. Right. The point is, is if theories are prior and there is no such thing as objective fact, then this whole idea of hypothesis testing is wrong. Right. It's not defensible. Right. There's, there's a famous sort of, there was an argument about what causes heat, hmm. right? And one of them was you have that, is something like atoms vibrating was one theory. And then there was this idea that you had this sort of liquid that would sort of escape. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, how do you design an experiment that says one way or the other? Mm -hmm. And this, this goes to what you're saying about, you can do that experiment all day long, mm -hmm. but the two sides are going to sort of see, right. are going to confirm their theory from whatever happens. Right. The classic thing, we do this, <laughs> I do this ad nauseum and the students get sick of it, but the point is still made. Mm -hmm. Is every morning when, you know, if you got up and watched the sunrise in the loft, what do you see? Right. Well, I mean, you see what it sure looks like off. that sun's going around <laughs> us. It does. Yeah. And so, okay, so you got Ptolemy and Copernicus talking to each other. Ptolemy says, see, there it is. And Copernicus is going, no, this is what's happening. Yeah. Well, the question is, how many sunrises do you have to watch to solve that. Right. And the answer is, you're not going to solve it that right. way. You got to do something else. You got to realize that it's not about facts. It's a much different project than that. Yeah. That to me was revolutionary when I saw that. And that was the end of me as a <laughs> nerd scientist, sort of. <laughs> well, Charlie, maybe we will have to have you back to, to work this in. I want to end the conversation by returning to Lucretius. Our modern sort of sense of science, right? One of one of the key theories in modern science is the second law of thermodynamics, right? That you can't get away from things running down. Mm -hmm. And I've heard I've heard there's stories of famous physicists saying like, if you get rid of the second law of thermodynamics, like we got nothing, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. so that's such a fundamental part of our modern sort of idea of physics. And that's not, you know, that's not part of Lucretius's picture because they're, because as you were saying, right, the, the atoms are inert. There's mm -hmm. not, there's not energy there. So why are we talking about energy? Mm -hmm. So our modern sort of picture of, of science would look back at Lucretius and says, well, he doesn't even have like one of the fundamental building blocks. Mm -hmm. So why is Lucretius worth reading even now, you know, as part of, as, as part of Western civilization? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. I mean, I mean, there's, there's their first obvious reason. And that is why do all scientists today think the world is comprised of atoms is because, the first generation of modern scientists read Lucretius. Mm -hmm. That's just history. Yeah. So it's just product of history. Yeah. So do I believe in atoms? I don't know. Yeah. Because there's pieces of modern atomic theory that, to me, don't provide answers to all the fundamental questions. Yeah. So I don't find modern atomic theory completely satisfying. Yeah. Well, what are the options? Well, one of the things to do is go back and see what other options mm -hmm. were. Secondly, 
it's it's always helpful. It was, so, for example, take take science. It's very helpful to go back and see how individuals, what process individuals were using to come up with conclusions. Mm -hmm. That's always a useful endeavor. Mm -hmm. So, as I said, how is it that all modern scientists would argue for hypothesis testing? And I don't think that's defensible. Well, in part, by going back and reading the early scientists, you, you can see that that's antithetical to what they were doing. So th there's, it's worth reading a Lucretius or a Galileo because right. their method is different. Their methods right. are different. Right. And there may very well be some very important insights there mm -hmm. that have just been overlooked. So, so those are two reasons. You, you know, one is just understand the history. And the other part is, though, it's just fascinating to see their thought process and why they came to the conclusions they did and then see the consequences of those results. Right. It's striking to, to me. Time. It's striking to me reading Lucretius, how he will come to certain conclusions. And I think it's extremely valuable to think about why is that the wrong conclusion to come to? Mm -hmm. Even if I don't, you know, if I, if I'm a modern scientist, I go, well, he didn't test the hypothesis, you know, right. like I just yeah. sort of dismiss it out of hand. Right. And, and we may very well have sort of experimental reasons for believing something right. different. Yeah. But the import, <laughs> the important thing is sort of like, well, it would be helpful to be able to answer Lucretius on his own terms. Right. Because while it may not sort of advance the field of physics or whatever, it does advance sort of my understanding of like how these sorts of arguments get made. Right. And it's a very important skill to learn to put yourself in somebody else's head mm -hmm. at his point in time and see how he did it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great skill just to have that that on its own but second once you understand exactly how he did it now i'm in a position to critique it mm -hmm. as you say from his own perspective right. you know within within his frame right right that's helpful to me because sometimes it'll point out to me that i got something wrong in my frame right right well, Charlie, I think this has been a fascinating conversation about Lucretius. Do you have any last comments before we sort of sign off here that you think is worth saying? Well, I, I guess I'd say w one last thing. One of the things I do when we do this reading in the class mm -hmm. is in thinking about a therapeutic philosophy. If any of you know the song Dust in the Wind, hmm. Listen to Dust in the Wind and just ask yourself, I mean, is this or is this not Lucretius's theory? Yeah. Now, if you know the history of the background of the song, you know, you'll know. So it's, it's written by a Christian for a very different purpose. Hmm. Hmm. But as I would say, just listen to the song and yeah. ask yourself, is this therapeutic? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, Charlie, I think this has been, as I say, it's been a fascinating conversation and ho hopefully we'll have you back to have that conversation about sort of the bigger picture of science and your experience with science and why you should come to Gutenberg to do science. <laughs> if you are interested in these questions about science or would like to contact us about these ideas, we can be reached at podcasts 
at gutenberg.edu. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Thank you, Gil. 